there in Colossians as we begin. Lord willing, we uh, maybe will go a little bit further in the passage than we just read, but um, it's interesting in God's providence. Um, Pastor Matt had already asked me to speak uh, tonight, and so what I've done is actually, which was a, a little smaller uh, a time in the Word, uh, but I've uh, expanded that a little bit, and uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to look at that this morning. When I was in high school, I had the opportunity to be involved in in a voice contest. Uh, My music teacher had picked a few pieces that, in my estimation, were just a little too high for me, and my performance in the contest uh, evidenced that. Um, it just didn't go as well as I had hoped. I, I'll, I'll just say that. Um, it, I, I didn't think it was particularly horrible. Um, but one of the comments that the judges made on my scoring sheet caught my attention. At the time, I really appreciated the comment. But in hindsight, I later realized, years later, honestly, that he was actually working really hard to find something nice to say. What he said with an exclamation point was to my vocal performance of these two pieces. He said, nice suit. (laughs) Have you ever had someone thank you in such a way that it seemed like they were working really hard to think of something for which to thank you? Or maybe they were glaringly omitting other things for which they were not thankful to you. So they thought of the one thing that they were. Sometimes you can have someone thank uh, someone. Maybe you can think of political acceptance speeches or uh, music or, you know, uh, video award speeches in which they quickly get from their thankfulness to their thankfulness about themselves. Their thankfulness goes to focusing back on them themselves. They're drawing the attention that way. Well, when the Apostle Paul writes a letter to your church, if he mentions thankfulness to you, you can be sure that he means it. And the things that he actually mentions that he's thankful to you or to God about you, he means it. And he's being genuine in that. We can, that, we can assume that if, if it's God-breathed, then it's profitable for our instruction. And as, as David read for us there in verse 3, Paul quickly in this letter to the Colossian church gets to thankfulness for them. What does God mean for us to learn and apply from this personal opening to Paul's letter to the Colossian church? Lord willing, we're going to look at this first opening section of Paul's letter uh, to the church at Colossae and uh, learn from it and hopefully, by God's will, apply it to our own thinking and our own living. I want us to take a second and pray and ask God that he would do that uh, in us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We do know that every jot and tittle, every word of it is uh, breathed out by you and is profitable for our instruction. And so we ask that by the Spirit who breathed it out, uh, you would also uh, give us grace to understand and and apply it as well. We ask for your help in that. In Christ's name, amen. 
A few Sunday mornings ago, um, we had the opportunity to look at the book of Colossians. And so um, we're going to be looking, obviously, again at that this morning. Uh, the theme of Colossians is the preeminence and the all-sufficiency of Christ. And this was a letter that was written from Paul. He was probably under house arrest back in Rome, and he was writing to this normal, local, mostly Gentile church in Colossae. It, it used to be a, a hub of trade, and the, the, the trade route had moved, but all the diversity that comes with it being a trade route remained there in the church. And so someone had been spreading a religious stew of false teaching there in the church of Colossae. Uh, there's, there, there's not a name given, but later on in chapter 2, he mentions this person who is, is spreading this stew of false teaching. And, and basically what had been appealing to this Colossian church is this desire that all of us have in our fallen state. And that's this desire for more than Christ, either through special spiritual experiences that this false teacher was offering, or maybe maybe through rigid adherence to the law and, and all the do's and don'ts of Christianity. There, there was a tendency to adhere to those and ultimately have more than Christ and look beyond Christ to, a, to an experience along that lines. So the purpose of Paul's letter is to combat that false teaching by not more teaching, as it were, about, no, you need to not do this, but do that, but really you need to be focusing your attention somewhere else. You need to be focusing your attention on Christ, his preeminence, and his all-sufficiency. If we were to read through the book all at once, we would notice a couple of kinds of trees in the forest. The first of these is the theme of Christ. Now, you might say, well... Wouldn't that be like in every New Testament book where you could say that's the theme of the book? Yes, but in this particular book, almost compared to all of the rest of the books of your New Testament, Christ is mentioned significantly, and, and he has a reason for doing that. Another theme is the theme of world powers. This false teacher might have been appealing to deeper spiritual experience, angelic visions, and so because of that, he's going to elevate Christ and, and then the, the idea of how that applies to the church, the body is referenced many times. And then this little word all is mentioned more times than any other New Testament book. And, and the idea is, is that it, Christ is over all. He's in control of all. All of the experiences that you could ever possibly find, Christ is over them. All of the world powers that these believers might have been tempted to try to tap into through some interesting spiritual experience, Christ is over them. And then the fact that you as a believer, you Colossian church, Paul was writing, you are in Christ. And he ties that all together. Christ is greater than all. And you, if you have Christ, then you have all you need. If Christ is over all and you are in Christ. Christ. So you could say this, Christ is preeminent over all, and he is all sufficient for you. That's the takeaway from the overall book of Colossians. If we were going to roadmap it, the outline is just in three general categories. First, a personal 
this, this personal approach that Paul has, but he also connects it to Christ. He's appreciating the, these believers who are in Christ. And then he gets to the meat of the book, the doctrinal section, the work and the, the person and work of Christ himself. And then the so what of the doctrine, the practicality of wh- what does this mean for you because you are in Christ. And we've talked about all that that is, the practical living out your position in Christ. This morning, Lord willing, we're going to look at this personal aspect. First, Paul says, hi, just as he might do in any letter. But that's really what we see in this uh, first section. And then he talks about his thankfulness for the Colossian church. And then he talks about the specific ways in which he is praying for this church, the personal aspect of Paul's letter. First, what do we see from the way Paul says hello to this Colossian church. In verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. The third word of this letter that we have in the English Standard Version notes for us, the number one, the authority that Paul is wanting us to be reminded about. He's an apostle. Acts 1, we won't take the time to look there, but Acts 1 shows us that the replacement for Judas, who betrayed Christ, Judas Iscariot, would need to be someone who had been with Jesus and had also witnessed his resurrection. And although Paul didn't walk this earth with Jesus during his earthly ministry, Acts 9 tells us that in his road to Damascus experience, that Paul, in fact, had had a face-to-face interaction with the risen Christ. 2 Corinthians 12 tells us about this experience that Paul had in which he sat at the feet of Jesus and learned from him personally. Paul is an apostle. There's, there's an authority that we ought to infer from his being an apostle. He's noting that when he says hello. And also, there's a humility, not only authority, but humility. He identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus, but then what does he say after that? This is by the will of God. This, is, this has been God's choice for me, he's saying. He's not, I haven't achieved this. If you read the rest of what Paul says in the New Testament, he knows he is the least of all. He, he had done horrible things to God's church. And he's noting this is only by God's will that, that this has been the case for me. And he's also quick to note his friend and his brother in ministry, his protege, the guy that he's mentoring, Timothy. Now, did Timothy write the book of Colossians? In reality, most of what this letter uh, has for us is probably not Timothy's wording necessarily. Um, It's not like Paul, hey, hey, you know, you messed up on that one. I would word it this way. Um, You should really say it the other way. Much of the letter is Paul himself speaking in the first person. I am thankful for this. I did this. But notice that Paul is quick to acknowledge others involved in this process. He's, he's, he's focusing on others. There's a humility about him. In addition to his authority and his humility in how he's introducing himself in the letter, he also notes identity. Identity not of himself, but as the people that he's talking to. Verse 2, who is he writing to? He calls these Colossian believers saints. And when you think of the word saints, 
Maybe you're thinking of the idea of being set apart, God's holy people. This isn't the idea um, that you might find in, in a Catholic church where there's a saint because they've done something special. And so we, we have things that we, we honor them through. Paul recognizes that all of those who have trusted in Christ personally for their hope of salvation are saints. They're God's set-apart holy people, the ones that God has set apart. And then he also has this aspect of family in his hello. He calls them what? Saints and also faithful brothers. He doesn't call them, you know, his, his minions, my fellow servants that are and accomplish my greater big vision for, for, for Europe right now. He's calling, you are my brothers, my brothers and sisters. You're not under my spiritual authority, my servants. There's really this familial sense, like... We all have this family identity. If we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, we're all part of God's family. And so we're, we're equals in that sense. And he has this family aspect. We're on the same team. I'm with you. You're with me. But he, he doesn't just call them brothers, but he, he, he describes them in a way that he doesn't use in any other of his opening greetings to other churches. He says, you're my faithful brothers. It's, it's got to be encouraging to them to hear him talk about them in that way. Paul's telling us that we've been faithful and even how he's talking to us. But it's also probably a little bit of exhorting going on as well, coaching them, you faithful brothers, you need to keep on being that way. Keep on being what you're good at. You're being faithful. You're an encouragement to me. We need to be faithful to Christ and to the gospel. So there's a lot that we see even in just how Paul introduces the letter. There's the family, the identity of them as saints. There's humility. And yet Paul still does maintain an authority as an apostle of Christ. But then he notes and turns the corner in verse 3 to his thankfulness for them. Thankfulness for them. Who ultimately receives the thankfulness in verse 3? We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. So the person that's receiving the thankfulness is God himself. He's directing his gratitude for these people. He's directing their attention back to God, who has been gracious to Paul through them. When is he thankful? Maybe he's thankful for them at other times, but verse 3 says he's always reminded about how thankful to God for them he is when he prays for them, which he's going to later tell them, hey, I do pray for you, and these are the specific ways that I do that. He's praying for them regularly, and he's thankful to God for them. Many times, prayer itself reminds us of our thankfulness for others. If I'm not praying for other people, I'm less reminded of them. But when I am praying for them, I'm, I'm talking to God about these other fellow brothers and sisters. And a lot of times that increases my thankfulness for them as I'm setting my mind on them before the throne of grace for them. Why is he thankful? The reasons for the faithfulness, reasons for the thankfulness is just that, is their faith in Christ. Verse four, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus... Their faith in Christ just, Paul can't help but thank God, wow, what have, what, what have you done? What miracle have you done in these believers there in Colossae? 
I'm just so thankful to God for you because you trusted in Christ. That's awesome. And then also, their love that you have for all the saints, the second half of verse 4. He's being very specific in his thankfulness, and it's directed to their faith in Christ and also the love that they have for the believers that are actually in their lives, but also, in a broad sense, for all the saints. Now, this is maybe a typical Pauline sentence where it kind of keeps on going, but it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so we have to take it for what it is. He, he transitions and he says, what are the source of those reasons for this thankfulness? They have a heavenly hope. And, and maybe he's thankful for that. He is, but he's also probably reminding them of this as well. You have, verse 5, a hope laid up for you in heaven. And the source of the heavenly hope then comes in the second half of verse 5. Of this, this hope that's laid up for you in heaven, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel. The gospel is what has reminded them of this heavenly hope. And when he says the word of truth, that's probably him just just laying a little bit of ground for groundwork for what he's going to basically shoot down later in the letter. The falseness that's being spread in the church. We have the word of the truth, and if we have that, we don't need anything else. So he's reminding them, he's giving them an anchor point that he's reminding them of the word of the truth that is found in the gospel. It's a subtle counter to the false teaching that he's going to address later. He's thankful for the effectiveness of the gospel that you see down in verse 6, which has come to you as indeed the whole world, it is bearing fruit and growing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. The effectiveness of the gospel, Paul's reminding these Colossian believers, it's, it's not just specific to a special circumstance, it's, it's specific to the entire world. It's effective worldwide. And again, that's likely another subtle counter to the false teaching. This gospel that you showed faith in and are hoping in, this gospel is effective around the world. So, so don't be tempted by this false teaching that's going to offer more than the gospel. The gospel's powerful. Since the day that they had heard it, it's, it's also local. The gospel had borne fruit among them. They understood the grace of God and truth. This, no, really, this was the truth. You don't and you didn't need any more than the truth of the gospel. And then at the end of this thankful section, he's, he's, he's going to be quick to point attention to other believers that have been really significant to them. He, Paul is very quick to, 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 to cast off significance to others and say, oh, don't forget about this person. They're very significant to me and they should be significant to you. He's not quick to keep the attention on himself. Paul has a lot of gracious things to say and probably is trying to give weight to this other person. Verse 7, just as you heard, just as you learned it, the truth, from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He, he had been the one that had taught them the gospel. He's a beloved fellow servant of Paul and Timothy's. He's been faithful on their behalf. And, and, and Epaphras had great things to say to us about you, about your love in the Spirit. 
Paul is evidencing his thankfulness for other people, and he's trying to remind them, you need to be thankful for this fellow servant that you have, probably the pastor of this Colossian church that had first introduced the gospel to them. So, in Paul's thankfulness for the Colossian church, there's a couple of applications that we should rightly infer, a couple of takeaways, if you will. This is Paul who who had a he, he had an awareness of the highest standards of what mature Christ likeness looked like. Paul knew what maturity in Christ was. And yet he is still very quick, right out of the gate, to express thankfulness to those that you could probably argue were less mature spiritually than he was. So a first takeaway would be to do this, to express Thankfulness. Are you a person that expresses thankfulness to others? Do you express appreciation? Well, you've heard this before. Well, I I, I don't want them to get a big head. So I'm going to tell you this thing that I'm thankful thankful for that other person about, but I would never tell them. Well, that probably evidences that maybe you struggle with the big-headedness, too. Sometimes we quickly see the things that we don't like about others because we we know them so well ourselves. It's okay. In a sense, we we ought to think the best and not the worst about that other person when we're going to express, go ahead and express, we're going to risk them getting a big head, so to speak. If you think about it, Paul was probably spiritually superior to everyone in the Colossian church, but that didn't stop him from expressing his thankfulness to them. We see that in the book of, in a couple of uh, Corinthian letters. Paul says he's thankful for them of all people, dysfunctional and messed up of a church as it was. And that doesn't stop him from being thankful to God about even them. In fact, I, I would say that his spiritual maturity in likeness to Christ was probably evidencing itself through the thankfulness that he was expressing to them. But his gratefulness doesn't stop with the people themselves. Paul's thankfulness always makes makes its way back to God and to the gospel. So that'd be a right takeaway for us. In our thankfulness to fellow believers in particular, let your thankfulness make its way back to God. Note how God is involved in the thing that you're thankful to this person about. In other words, you could say something like this. God really used you to encourage me just when we needed it. That that was God's kindness to us through us, through you. God used you to meet a need that very few people knew about, but that was God's kindness to us. Thank you. That's not like a backhanded way of like saying thank you and trying to get the attention away, but I'm not really that thankful. It was mostly God, very little you. That's, that's helping them appreciate God more. And, and you're able to point the attention that way in a way that still legitimately does appreciate their sensitivity to the Holy Spirit and doing that good inclination that God had given them. Point the attention to God in your thankfulness. Point the attention to God through maybe a gift that they have. God has certainly given you a gift, and, and we as a church family are just, we're, we're the better for it. I don't know what we would do without you exercising that gift the way you do. That's God's working in them, and they're going along with it. 
and you can express your gratitude to them through that. Let your thankfulness, for, for one, be thankful and express it. And then secondly, let your thankfulness point back to God. The, the next section that Paul draws our attention to is helpful for us to learn from. I think a lot of us, and, and that's the section of where Paul says that he is praying for them. He's praying for them. A lot of us naturally pray about what's important to us. If we make the time to pray, a lot of times it is this, the, the, the physical needs that we have, right? And that's, that's human, that's natural. God knows that we ourselves are human and our physical needs often touch us the most acutely. And so it's natural for us to ask God for help in those things and, and for relief from those things. That is good and human. And it still evidences that we're God's children, that we're begging him to get out of pain. Like that's natural. That's okay. That's good. But if that's the only thing that we pray for, from Paul's example here and in the rest of the New Testament, we might be imbalanced in the content of our prayers. Notice the two halves of this section that Paul focuses on. What does he pray for about them? The first half is the idea of asking. The idea of asking. In verses 9 through 11, he's asking God for some specific things. And what I want to do as we go through these three verses... Uh, through this section, all of it, is to think about a particular brother in Christ, a particular sister in Christ, here in, the, here in your church family. Maybe, maybe, it's a, maybe it's a brother, maybe it's a sibling in your own family. But fill in the blank for praying this way about that person that God just brought to your mind, that you just thought of. The first thing that Paul asks is we see, well, we will read verse 9. And so from the day we heard, because I'm so thankful for you and your love in the Spirit, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. He does it all the time, very regularly, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. In a general way, verses 9 and 10 is telling us that we ought to be praying that, and put your person, the name, the name in the blank, that this person would know what God wants him or her to do. That's what Paul is saying, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you would know God's will in all spiritual wisdom so, so the right thinking is going to come before the right doing, spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that in verse 10, they can walk, they can actually do, they can actually act in a way that's worthy of the Lord. How are we going to know, what should, specifically should we pray for someone to know God's will? Sometimes it is, yes, that they would know which house to buy, which car to buy, which, you know, which, which to go left or to, to go right in this decision. But most specifically, we know God's will, not from putting out a fleece and things like that, but what God has already told us in his word. I pray that this person would know your will from your word. And then secondly, how to apply God's word by God's spirit all the spiritual wisdom and understanding. 
not just enough to read God's word and to say that we did it, but to actually know how to put it into practice, that they would be able to apply it, that the spirit would enliven, illuminate the word and help them to know how to apply it. And then living worthy of the Lord, that they would actually apply and live out what God is showing them from his word. That's how you know God's will is from what he's already told us is his will. And if what God has told you is different than what God has already said in his word, then God didn't tell you that, right? So, so we're praying that they would think rightly about the decisions that they have according to God's word. How do you live worthy of the Lord? You live worthy of the Lord by pleasing him. That's what he says at the second half of verse 10, fully pleasing to him, praying that they would live worthy of the Lord by having spiritually fruitful good works, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. And then by knowing God better, when, when they have a decision to make, are they letting God's word be the, 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 the thing that dictates anything? If God says, I shouldn't do that from his word, not going to even consider it. We're shutting the door on that. But then how to actually apply it, how to actually live it out. Would they please you? Would they, would they have spiritually fruitful good works? Would they know you better as a result of knowing ultimately what you want them to do? And then secondly, in verse 11, you're praying that this person would be strengthened by God's power. Verse 11, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. And again, his sentence continues to meander. Just like earlier, that knowledge had the purpose of living worthy of the Lord. So this strength also has a purpose. And we see it there in verse 11, to have endurance. For that trial that they're going through, yes, Lord, would you, would you somehow remove that trial from them. That's painful. That's hard for them. But in the midst of that, what Paul says he's going to pray for them is that they would have strength to have endurance in the middle of the trial and to have patience that is joyful for all endurance and patience with joy. Because th those are supernatural things. If, if endurance is happening, in, if, jo if joyful patience is happening in the midst of a trial, God was the only one that could have been doing that because that's not natural. That is supernatural. And so that's what we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he transitions again in verse 12 to some more thanking. In verses 12 to 14, oh, that's just what I was mentioning, the, the specific of the strength of God's power. But then he transitions to thankfulness, to thanking in verses 12 through 14. Why would Paul be thanking God specifically? He's thanking them. He's thanking that the Father has made these people able to share in the spiritual inheritance. Verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. The idea of being authorized to do something. God had made these Colossian believers authorized or, or sufficient to be able to do something, to be able to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Light and darkness he'll be referencing and then, as usual, after mentioning this, 
Paul is thinking about, oh, their spiritual inheritance, and then he, he branches off to say he's excited about their salvation. He's excited about his own salvation. The second thing that, that he's thankful for is that the Father has delivered all of us from the dark domain to the kingdom of his dear Son. That's what he says in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And again, he's probably, again, setting up the, uh, the, the concept of something that's going to be an argument against false teaching that he's going to address later in the letter. The domain of darkness. These are the unseen powers, the world powers that probably are really what's behind this other spiritual teaching that claims to tap into the other world to see really spiritually significant stuff. And he's like, no, actually, God delivered you from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And, and, and now he's transitioning to get into his doctrinal section of the letter, which we won't take time, obviously, to do. In whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. In this son that we're going to be talking about the rest of our letter, in him, if you are in him and you are, he's saying, you have all that you need. You have specifically, most significantly, redemption. We are redeemed. Our sins are forgiven. What is Paul drawing attention to in the content of his prayer? And so, as we would apply this section, takeaways to how Paul prays, we would be right, number one, to first pray this for your church family. If you're not sure what to pray for people, at least start with model prayers in Scripture. Pray this for your church family. Pray this for your, your kids. If you know that they're believers. Pray this if you're not sure what to pray for your, your brothers and sisters in your care group. Take Colossians 1 9 through 14, and pray that for them. And then, secondly, as you see there, strive for a more biblical proportion in the content of your prayer. Does your prayer involve what God has already told us is his will for them? Does your prayer include, yes, the physical needs, the burdens that are kind of you know, screaming at us all the time. We, we, we know that they're there. Yes, we should talk to God about them. But are we biblically proportioned in also talking to God about the things that he has said he wants you to talk to him about and striving for a more biblical proportion in the content of our prayer? Maybe somebody asks you, hey, you know, what can I pray for you about? Say, Colossians 1, 9, 10, and 11 specifically. There's a decision I have to make. Pray that, pray that for me. I, I know that's God's will for me. And I'm going to ask God to show me more clearly how to make a biblical decision about this thing that I have coming up. When you're offering to pray for someone else, you can tell them, hey, I've been praying for you. I was praying. And then you can copy paste these verses if you've actually been praying for them in those ways. That's a God-focused, that's a word-focused way to encourage one another. Is through praying God's will. You know that these things are God's will if you're praying scripture and if you're praying in the way that Paul encourages us to pray. 
So in conclusion, this is the personal aspect of Paul's letter to the Colossian believers. In a sense, you could say, do what he does. Say hello to people. And, and, and in how you interact with people, are you humble? Are you encouraging them at their position in Christ? Are you expressing your thankfulness to people in a way that points them to God and is genuinely thankful for them? There's no spiritual superiority amongst the people of God. There's thankfulness expressed. And then are you actually praying for your brothers and sisters in Christ, for that person that, that you were thinking of earlier? Are you praying God's will for them specifically as he has revealed it? I want you to look at the end of the first chapter here. If we were to, to have the mindset that Paul does, then look at uh, verse 27, verse 27 of chapter 1. To them, he's talking about the saints, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works in me. If each of us committed to be more, being more biblically thankful and more biblically prayerful, I know that Paul's desire for this Colossian church would happen in our church. A growing biblical Christ-like maturity would happen if we're thanking one another in the ways that are scriptural, if we're praying for one another in the ways that are scriptural. We would be coming more like our head, who is Jesus Christ. So let's commit to that by God's grace. Let's pray.